2: Hello, hello, hello everybody. How are you doing today? I'm Ray Harkins hanging out with 100 Words or Less, the podcast, hanging out with you on your beautiful commute or your, your jog or just whenever you're listening to this, you know, I, I'm always curious because... Uh, You know, people email the show and are like, Hey, I have spent so much time with you. And there are times where I like to paint a picture in my head of like what it is that you're doing. Cause I know what I do when I listen to podcasts, usually it's, you know, driving or, you know, on my morning walks and that sort of stuff. So, you know, you always feel like, uh, you're just hanging out with somebody. So, Anyways, we have an amazing, amazing discussion today with Daniel Austin, who uh, plays in a band called Die Young, an incredible hardcore band from Texas, and he is also a very uh, prolific author, and he also runs a website and a, uh, I, I guess, yeah, I would call it a company, <laughs> Vegan Meathead. So he is into weight training, and he's been vegan for a long time, and uh, he wrote a book. He wrote multiple books. He has uh, his book called Vegan Meathead. But then he also has uh, books of poetry and his first work of fiction, which is really, really good. And you can find anywhere you buy books. But um, <clears throat> yeah, he's just a really, really compelling person. I've met him via my work at PETA. I just found him to be an incredibly uh, insightful and intelligent dude. And so I wanted to have him on the show. And that is exactly what we did. So more on him in a few minutes. You can email the show 100 less at gmail.com. Been getting some fun chats and feedback from people tossing out some guest ideas. Someone was like, Hey, you should get Ryan from carry on. And I was like, yeah, I've, I've tried, tried to circle around him. But, uh, yeah, I just always love that, that dialogue that you get back and forth. And sometimes people are kind enough to be like, Hey, I actually, you know, bought your band's CDs or whatever. Like, and you just are able to, it, open up some interesting discussions with people. So email the show. You could rate and review it on whatever platform you are using, whether it's Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, whatever it is, just contribute a little bit because uh yeah, it just makes the show seem more legit. And I appreciate that. Uh, I'm actually going to be, if you are at NAM, which if you do not know what NAM is, it is a huge, huge music uh, instrument industry convention here in Southern California, I'm actually going to appear doing a live podcast. It's actually my first live podcast at the Gator Cases booth. I don't have any details beyond. It's going to be Sunday, January 19th from noon to 1 p.m. So if you're at Nam, come hang out and you can watch me interview. I'm actually going to be interviewing Josh Newton, who plays in Shiner and also used to play in Every Time I Die. A really, really fun uh, discussion I plan on having with him. And he's kind enough to, uh, yeah, drop by the booth and uh, be able to record a podcast. So, yeah, if you're at Nam, say what's up. Come see the show. And, uh, yeah, Gator Cases, thank you for having me out. Um, what else do I gotta tell you? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. I hope you're doing well. The new year, we're we're in it, man. We're a couple weeks into it. Everyone's killing their new year's resolutions or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. I always find those New Year's resolutions to be um not very helpful. I don't do them. Um I know some people need them as motivation, but you know, I kind of just look at it It's like, oh, turning of the page, and you know, maybe here is some things that I can maybe improve on this year. Um, I'm not necessarily a goal-oriented person. Um, I don't need like these, these things that I'm striving for. I just, uh, you know, I want to be a, you know, maybe more healthy person. Maybe you want to be a better person to those I care about that sort of, you know, generalized stuff. But anyways, yeah. So here, let's, let's talk to Daniel. Okay. Great chat. You will like it. I promise. Okay. I'll talk to you after the episode is over. Like I always do. obviously we first met when we both worked at uh, PETA, the animal rights organization. I was already familiar with die young just because, you know, I, whatever, like everybody pays attention to hardcore and it's just like, Oh yeah. Like I like Die young. Um, but I, and I'm sure this really?
3: is some people like us.
2: I know. Yeah. Some people do. I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of <laughs> weird. But, but I'm sure you experienced this when you first started to work at PETA, where it was like you immediately get introduced to all the hardcore kids that work there. Oh, yeah.
3: <laughs> well, you know, that was kind of um, I was kind of invited to work there by people who like that young. Oh, real? Oh, that's even. Yeah, closer. like I don't know how big of fans they were, but they knew I was the singer of Die Young, and that I, and they were looking for someone to tour their ass off in PETA 2, and they knew. Oh, well, that guy, you know, he like he probably doesn't make real money, so let's <laughs> let's uh, he probably thinks PETA money is real money, so <laughs> he, we know he can tour, so
2: right. Let's <laughs> let's, put, let's put him on the road. Yeah.
3: Hey, you know what I was thinking though is. We didn't properly meet, but remember that To Die For matinee at in long beach
2: oh dude yeah where i split my head open yeah
3: yeah well finer truth opened that show last minute and you guys played later that day and we didn't eat that day but that was the first time i ever saw you
2: that's oh my gosh i totally yeah. forgot about because I, yeah. I yeah i mean i obviously remember that show because i got my head split open by a tooth but uh i totally forgot that another yeah. like you know i have the show poster but i remember yeah you guys like i didn't know that you were attached to that band but got it okay
3: yeah, I was the guitarist, and that was my my high school band. Those are, that was our third tour ever, and I believe our last tour. <laughs> just, just like yeah. every good high school band, it's like yeah, yeah, <laughs> one or two tours. Um,
2: yeah, <laughs> but the you know a, a, as we got uh, you know introduced through PETA and you know the, uh, sort of tangentially working alongside of each other, um, the thing that I was always impressed with, and honestly still am impressed with you today, just you know observing you from afar, um, oh, like you uh, you hustle. You know, you're a dude and, you know, I say that and I hate to use that word because a lot of people and like, you know, whatever, you know, Silicon Valley where it's like, oh, this guy's got hustle. You know, I I, it's like it just (laughs) sounds it sounds dirty in a way where it's like, oh, you got hustle. So you're just trying to. yeah
3: I I don't really do it out of opportunism. I'm I'm uh, I just frantically. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not content. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're just searching around. Right? <laughs> and, and this may be
2: too big of a question to kind of start things off with, but you know, I think you can handle it where it's like where um, you know, cuz that that isn't something that is hardwired, you know, kind of in people. You know, people either uh, you know, are just content to like working whatever some, you know, one particular job and like, you know, have like, uh, you know, maybe play video games on the side, but like, you know, you're involved with a ton of different things. Um, where do you think that kind of like, you know, did you, I guess, observe your parents hustling? Was that just something that you always were? Where did that kind of come from?
3: You know, that's an interesting question because, um, the older I get, the more I realize that uh, I have this industrious nature that my father has. Okay. Which not everyone on his side of the family has and I remember like last Christmas I went to visit my aunt his sister up in Ohio and we were talking about how insanely industrious my dad is versus the rest of the family. And we don't know why. It's, it's just that guy who is... My, my dad builds homes and designs homes for a living, and he also uh, builds boats. And uh, he's a painter. And growing up, I didn't get along with him very well, so I didn't really appreciate all he did. But he's just a, a constant hustler. And... Um, I, I, you know, uh, my my dad's doing pretty well for himself now. So if I could find out how to turn my hustle into actual money, that would be great.
2: <laughs> sure, sure. So, he, um, so, so he just ba- he. Would you kind of peg him as sort of a a, a renaissance man of, of building and like obviously using his hands and
3: in art and yeah yeah he's a very crafty person um, and he didn't even go to school for any of it. He taught it all to himself. Reading books as a kid, and then people, as soon as he was eighteen, before he was eighteen, they were hiring him to build boats or houses. Wow! That's yeah, you know, and he, he probably is in the last generation where you could get away with that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's but true. He, in his industry, his reputation is so strong that people don't care he doesn't have degree, right? Because he he can outbuild people with degrees, you know. So, uh,
2: so, so you think just kind of the the observation or the. Yeah, the, it, it, through kind of osmosis, you watching your your dad kind of you know hustle well, around. I
3: didn't, I didn't grow up with him. My parents split when I was five. And, oh, okay. And he was definitely a workaholic kind of man, so he didn't he wasn't present a lot in the family, and uh, I think that's part of why he and my mom had such issues. Um, but well, I, I'm saying that when you consider nature versus nurture, I think there's some nature for me to have that kind of uh, personality or drive. Um, you know, like I, I, I am almost always doing things, you know, like it used to be just 100% banned, like when I was 19 to, well, really from like high school until, uh, geez, my late 20s when, you know, we laid Die Young down after like nine, seven, seven years of Die Young. But, you know, p- prior to that, I had done Finer Truth for a few years and, I was real serious at that, but I was limited by being in school, so, um, as soon as I was like a legal adult, I was just going 100% with Young. but, um, as, as I've gotten older and realized, oh, this music thing is, sometimes it's a hobby that can pay for itself, and that's cool, and, uh, enables me to travel with friends, but I, have I've gone on my own tangents, like, with writing, and then also, like, powerlifting, and, uh, vegan activism, and things like that, um, I don't know. I guess I've just been always restless. And I have to find something to bring meaning to myself because just a day job or career uh, has never done that for me. And, and I think a lot of people in, in our sphere of punk and creativity and music or whatever, you know, it's like these these hobbies or these passions rarely support us financially. So we have to find ways to juggle a bunch of things. So that we can, on one end, make money, and on the other end, pursue what really is true to our authentic selves. And um, I, I'm still trying to find that balance. And sometimes, you know, I appreciate you noting that I feel like that you think I'm always hustling. Um, but yeah, I often stretch myself too thin. Um,
2: yeah. Do you do you feel that kind of? Um, I mean, I, I think most people that, like you said, kind of have that. Um, you know, creative push to do a bunch of things like, you know, the, the phrase, the Jack of all trades, master of none. Like, you know, I very, <laughs> I feel that yeah,
3: way all the time <laughs> saying
2: say it. And I, it's funny because I've heard people, you know, of uh, you know, like really successful, you know, whatever actors and other people who are, you know, considered, you know, quote unquote successful also feel that same way. So I think that, you know, there's always that imposter syndrome, like all those critical voices in your head. I just don't think that like, i don't know it just doesn't go away
3: no and and um i guess maybe on some level as i get older i mean i'm 36 almost 37 now um i I guess i feel more of a panic to really succeed at something you know like i i have all these passions and i i guess that's cool that you know i i for the most part i don't just resign at the end of the day and watch netflix um there's something that after work or whatever I have to do to develop myself or some skill. But uh, there's that that great line in um, True Detective season one that says, life's barely long enough to get good at one thing, so be careful what you do get good at. And uh, I don't know. I feel like I still haven't mastered one thing, but I don't really – it's hard to choose one thing.
2: no, it's I, I very much uh, you know empathize and identify with that too because I think that um, you know it's like I I look at people who have um, you know I, people have had the the experience that you and I have had being exposed to a subculture and you know diving into it and you know soaking it in and and just just experiencing so much of it you know and learning so much from you know business aspects and all these other things. And then you look at other people who have just been like, okay, you know, I, I went to college, I I got this job, like, you know, I'm, I'm coding and like, that's like all that I do or whatever. And like, they just focus on that. And it's, it's so interesting because I'm like most of the people like you and I and many others where it's just like, oh yeah, we kind of just like, I don't know. We, I mean, we focus and we know how to like get stuff done, but like, we just don't, we just can't do one thing.
3: Yeah, and, uh, you know, they say in terms of financial success, just get good at one thing. <laughs> right, right. You know, whereas for me, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, I, I guess when I was younger, I never cared about that at all. But now, you know, as you get older, especially I bet for you, like you have family and uh, I just got rescue dogs, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's important, though. They're, they're, they're still, they're still a a, fine, a pretty heavy uh, obligation, but. um yeah. Uh, it, I find it, it is more important to succeed financially at something because you can't just keep like throwing rocks in the pond, you know. Um, yeah. But, man, I, I, I can tell you that when I did uh, live off of Die Young for the few years that we were going at it that hard, I actually I hated it. So the thing that I love to do, I bludgeoned to death. And that's why we broke up those those four years that we weren't a band. But
2: uh, do you think that was Do you think it was because the obviously that became your job, like, or was that was there other sort of the other influences that made you hate the thing?
3: I think mostly it was that um, we had gotten to a point where we were kind of plateaued doing the DIY circuit. And looking back, it would have been wise if we really had ambition to carry on with the band like like we kind of set out with to start employing management or a booking agent. People to kind of finagle us into new avenues to explore, you know, like to help market the band. But the band was never – we never looked at it as a business opportunity. It was. It was really – and uh, it's supposed to be a pure expression of how much we hated the world. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, I get <laughs> you know? it. I get and so it. when it started to be like, yeah, let's play this game, we were like, no, fuck that. We're just gonna keep playing houses. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, and, and and that was so defeating. It was just so like we watched other bands that you know couldn't even tune their instruments, who had a good Pro Tools recording, just. Ascend way further than us, and we started to get passed up on these tours that we thought we should be on, and we just got really resentful of the whole fucking game that even exists in underground music. and And uh, I just thought, I don't, don't want to be a part of this shit. Yeah. <laughs> and then also, you we had that thing where you know people like one or two of your songs, and you realize that's all they're there for. It's not your catalog and <laughs> the whole connection with like every, you know your work. It's like, oh, we like this one song where we can. You made a kind of anthemic, so we can remember those words. Right. So
2: you got a good mosh part.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I realized, oh, like people actually aren't connecting with this on the level that I want them to. And they, it's almost like, you know, they want us to play our one hit, like we're one hit wonders. And I was basically just thinking, fuck
2: this. All right. You want band merch, right? The only place that you should go to is rockabilia.com. Use the code PC100Words, that's the number 100Words, and you will get 15% off of your order. They have so much rad stuff right now. They have grab bags where you're able to get three long sleeves for 20 bucks, or you're able to get like four t shirts for $15. How awesome is that? You can just completely outfit yourself in new band merch, and they are the place to order it. It's all officially licensed. Quick shipping, great customer service, like everything you want from a company, they deliver. And uh, they also have really, really other cool things besides merch, like, you into the Misfits? How about they got action figures for the Misfits? They carry so much great stuff. Go to their website, check it out, be able to find whatever it is you're looking for and use the code PC100Words. That gets you 15% off your order. I love Rockabilia; They are the real deal and uh, you should order as much as humanly possible from them. Like maybe once a, once a week, maybe once every other week. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much, Rockabilia. Now on with the show. Well I I totally understand cuz it's like especially too where you know when Die Young was the most active kind of in the you know mid 2000s as it were yeah. there was you know there was that idea that things could start to turn for bands that were you know playing hardcore where it was like okay you had the early 2000s where you know metalcore started to explode and bands started to you know quote unquote make a living or whatever um And uh, then, then it was like, you know, the mid two thousands is where everyone was kind of like trying to figure out what that actually meant. And so many, and like you said, so many bands existed on so many different levels where it was like, yeah, you could be successful. Like you said, like you guys were just, you know, doing DIY tour. And when I say just, I don't mean that in a disparaging way because like that is a lot of hustle. Um, And it's, but then so many bands, like you said, you know, kind of like, built off the shoulders of all the bands in the early two thousands and just immediately kind of like, Oh, we, we don't, you know, we'll do one DIY tour or whatever, but then we can immediately, you know, level up and then, you know, mm. it's just like, Oh, Oh, I, I guess that's an option.
3: <laughs> yeah. It was weird. I remember that time specifically cause we, we quit our jobs at the end of 2005 and spent a couple years going full force, like a full-time band touring internationally. Um, and the only place we ever had an agent was in Europe, uh, so everything we booked all over the world was just me. Um, but I remember at the end of 2005, we did we did a West Coast tour. It was actually to go play. We weren't officially on the trial reunion in 2005, but it was that pre-show. Oh yeah, sure. And we and we wanted to go see the the reunion show, which was one of the best shows ever. Um, but that tour we were just like man we're doing so well we don't know what to think about this this is fucking weird that people are buying all this stuff from us and the shows are good so maybe we should quit our jobs next year <laughs> and um and you know we did and you know we played like 200 shows a year for like 2 years in a row and it exhausted us sure and uh i mean definitely two of the craziest years of my life because you know those that's when we played all over like east asia and uh, uh alaska and right well you guys it's just random places
2: <laughs> yeah and you guys you guys remind me too of you know when uh, most precious blood you know started to like their ambition was very much in similar to yours where you guys were like let's play anywhere and everywhere mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. As much as humanly possible, and honestly, like not many bands have that. Uh, I guess drive or spark where it's just like, oh yeah, like I would like to play Africa or like you said, you play East Asia. Um, yeah, and it's it, and like I said, not many bands do that, and it's just cool that you guys were really focused on just being like, well, let's 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 try to take this as many places as possible.
3: Well, I think part of me as a young man was so uh i don't know kind of disappointed i you know i tried to go to college and i hated it so much i quit after a year and because because after I, I did my first tour with finer truth um the summer that i had graduated high school and that ruined me because that made i couldn't focus in that first year of college because all i could do is daydream about going back on That's tour, tour. <laughs> you, get the ta- and, you get the taste yeah, and when college didn't live up to my expectations and I was spending all this money to go to it working, you know, working um, pretty close to f- full-time, I feel like. Uh, I just didn't feel like it was worth the sacrifice because I didn't even know what I wanted to be. All I knew I wanted to, to, to do was play music at the time. And I wasn't really thinking about the future. And uh, it was kind of all, I mean, the name Die Young was just kind of like, I don't care. You know, I don't care what my future is, I just want to go do what I want to do. And that was kind of how I came up with the band name. Um, and I, I guess I never, I had some disillusionment about careers and money and things like that, because I felt like they were traps. And I thought, I just want to go see the whole world playing music.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Right. And accomplish so, as
2: much as possible. Yeah,
3: it was in, in the in the beginning. Da Young was built on this premise of um, let's play like old school influence hardcore or like punk influence hardcore. I, I, I thought of uh, Bad Religion's album Suffer because it's so lyrically strong. And every song sounds exactly the fucking same, right? <laughs> sure. And I thought, yeah, so because finer truth was basically a metal band, we were influenced by Earth Crisis, One King Down, Turmoil, and we we were young, but we wanted to be more like musicians. But it took us forever to write a song with Da Young. It was like, let's play, you know, you know, heavier than Suffer by Bad Religion, but with that same premise of these songs are easy to play and we can write a million of them real quick and get anybody to play them and just go. That was the point. Let's just go, you know? And, um, that's what we did.
2: Yeah, no, for sure. The, um, and you know, you being, I presume you were born and raised in Texas. Yes.
3: Yeah. Born in Houston, raised in Houston. I've lived a few other places now, but most of my life was in Houston.
2: Right. And so, you know, Texas is such a, yeah, I don't need to tell you it's a weird state because you've lived there and it <laughs> it's, it's, it, it's depressing to drive through because, you know, you can fall asleep on one side and then eight hours later, you're still in the same state, but you feel like you've like the the scenery has not changed whatsoever. Um, yeah. and granted that's of course like, you know, on the, the 40, but, um, you know so what is your relation to you know I guess the, the, the state at large like you know do you, you obviously are connected to it um, you know do you feel like it's home do you recognize the weirdness like where, where do you kind of sit with that?
3: Yeah um, totally it's full of contradictions which uh, <laughs> yeah. you know and dichotomies which I think makes it a really interesting place because as much as people sometimes think they hate the idea of Texas and because people in Texas are like nationalists, yeah, we want to get out of here. You're right. Yeah, Texas is its own country, and fuck the rest of the world. Texas is
2: All right. Don't mess with Texas.
3: That's it. You know, I mean, yeah, it's just uh, it's just this strange attitude. Um, and I remember when I started working at PETA, people were like, "You're not a normal vegan. You're a Texan vegan." What, really? The people yeah, were... because um, I was like the guy in the tour van that was like, "No, we got to get to the gym." And, oh, that's so funny and, and, and you know i just had this attitude of like we're vegan so you know we're superior and sure. and um we're, and you know i i guess i just had this attitude of kind of like i don't know like some kind of macho vegan or something sure which i've totally continued to
2: lean into I love yeah, as
3: a, per, a persona with this vegan meathead thing I do but um but you know like people were you, you just hanging around vegans from other parts of the country they were just like we don't know vegans like you
2: that that is so I honestly it, you <laughs> you saying that I never would have reflected on that but like uh, I I yeah no I could I could see where people would be like oh yeah like you probably could typify that um yeah. in different places
3: I, and I attribute it to to just being a Texan and that kind of bold personality that people associate with Texas. Because also, you know, growing up, uh, well, I went vegetarian when I was like 15, but uh, I didn't go vegan until I was like 22, something like that. And, um, but also, you know, Texas has its stereotypes about barbecue and cattle and meat, and so, I think that to be a vegan from Texas, you kind of have to be a more adamant, like one up the meat eaters in Texas kind of attitude, you know. So I can see that. Maybe maybe that's part of that persona for me. Also, is is that you know you're you're always kind of contending with the culture at large where you come from, and uh, in some ways, I still I think in you know that that attitude is within me like the texan kind of fuck you we're from texas you can't tell us what to do but at the same time it's like i'm not a fucking cowboy uh i don't like that kind of barbecue fuck you i'm vegan from texas right
2: (laughs) well yeah no i i can understand that because it definitely is a sort of um it, it, I mean, there's an attitude that clearly exists in Texas. And then there's also, you know, when you're specifically focusing on, you know, the punk and hardcore subculture, um, you know, Texas has always been such a really weird scene where it's like, you know, yeah. you, you have your disparate pockets of towns that, I mean, there, you could play, you could obviously do a two week tour of Texas and play. Yeah, you know, yeah, totally. Play Lubbock. Like, it, like, yeah.
3: It's, it's really interesting because East Texas, like when well, you've got Houston and Dallas, um, you know, D- Dallas always had its uh, – I, th- I think people had its stereotypes about the hardcore scene being more Christian and conservative, and a lot of really suburban, like, sheltered kids from conservative households, whereas Houston has always been, like, the more working class um, – and especially with Di Young being from Houston – When I started getting on political soapbox with Young, people in Houston, it's not that they necessarily disagreed. It's just they don't like being told what to think or what to do or or, or just challenge. People in Houston are like, we've got jobs. Unlike the rest of the country, we go to work. Just leave us alone. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very like blue collar. Like, look, we're doing all right. Just fucking don't disturb our fabric of reality here. (laughs) Right. Don't rock the boat, dude. Yeah. And then you go to Austin where it's like Peter Pan syndrome out the ass. It's, you know, it's so more open to the arts and um, non-traditional modes of being an adult. Like you can be a kid in Austin for the rest of your life and people won't bat an eye. That's, you know, um, and then once you go like San Antonio, Corpus Christi, Laredo, I mean, it's very much just Mexico. Um, and people are so warm and welcoming, and they circle pit, <laughs> and and they just are there to have fun, and they're not judgmental, and um, that's like a different planet. And then, you know, I lived in West Texas for uh, about a year out by Big Bend National Park, which is, for people who don't know, it's I think it's kind of like the equivalent of the Grand Canyon, but in Texas, just, you know, um, it's a really... Magical, isolated, off the beaten path kind of place, and um, that and that's like traveling back into the when people think of cowboys and Indians and all that shit in Texas. That's what West Texas, in a lot of ways, still is. You know, like mm-hmm. like uh, No Country for Old Men, the movie, or Hell or High Water. I mean, that's the kind of Texas that is still out in West Texas. It, it's 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 like going through a time warp, and that's a really interesting. I actually it's. Probably my favorite part of Texas because it's just so different. Sure, you, like you do can't do you replicate it. East side of Texas. Sure, sure. No, that's
2: really, that's really interesting. Um, and like you mentioned, your um, you know your parents separated when you were five. Do you, uh, like, what was your family structure like? Brothers and sisters and stuff like that.
3: That's kind of interesting. I don't have any full-blooded um, brothers and sisters. I mean, they're all my brothers and sisters, but uh, my parents. Got around. <laughs> got it. <Okay. laughs> yeah, so uh, I have a sister who's nine years younger than me that my mother had. And uh, we, we grew up together because I, I grew up with my mother when my parents split. Um, my dad had two boys with a woman who later died. Um, and my brothers are seven and nine years younger than me. And then there was a sister that I found out about in my mid-20s <laughs> that my dad had, I guess, with like a one-night stand or something when he was still with my mom, uh, which might have precipitated the divorce. Um, But I didn't know about this sister until I was like 26 years old. So so I got two sisters and two brothers, and we all, except for the one sister with my mom, we all grew up separately. But, you know, I was nine when that sister was born. And um, so I was... I was very isolated. I was, you know, like a latchkey kid mm-hmm. and uh, uh, spent a lot of time as a kid by myself cuz I didn't grow up in a household with brothers and sisters.
2: And because so, and because of that, like did you um I guess what kind of kid did you find yourself? I mean, how I know you to be is always um you know, like you're you're friendly, but <clears throat> you're not, you know, loud. I would you know, like you're not Yeah. Uh, you know you're not the sort of guy where it's just like you know immediately people are just like oh dude daniel just like calm down like you're <laughs> yelling all the time or whatever you know um whereas i've been accused of that before so you know did you find yourself kind of being you know more introverted and obviously inside your head yeah. when you a sports yeah. guy or
3: well you know when i was a kid i did play uh sports until my dad got me a guitar in 5th grade when i turned 11 Because, um, you know, I was getting into music then, and it would have been like radio rock, like Nirvana, Pearl Jam. It was a lot of that Seattle stuff that kind of turned me on to the kind of more aggressive rock. Um, But, yeah, I got a guitar when I was 11, and I feel like uh, into my early teen years, that's where a lot of my creativity went. Because when I grew up, I uh, I liked to draw, and I was into comic books. And those kinds of things. And then I did play in like little league sports that my parents put me in and I was okay. But um music is what kind of when I got a guitar and I started studying records and and music and taking guitar lessons, that's when I really kind of sat in my own world at home. And I, I mean I had friends, but um I've always been the kind of person when it comes to friends, it's quality over quantity. So yeah, like we say, I'm the guy. If I walk in a room, people aren't, you know, it's not all about me. I'm not the center of attention. It's because I usually like to talk to two or three people and have really high uh, quality, deeper conversations.
2: Right. You're picking your spots as opposed to yeah. like, all right, I got to make the rounds and let everybody yeah. know that I'm here.
3: Yeah. But, you know, I, I like, I spent a lot of time by myself as a kid playing guitar, writing songs. Um, I used to, before I had a computer or anything, I would make little. Tapes of just like met, like bands that I would imagine, and I would just record guitar tracks and then draw like some artwork and fit it into a tape case, so that, that it was. Like, I know,
2: love I was that. Do,
3: yeah, yeah. I was doing, I was just dreaming about being a musician when I was like twelve years old. You know. Um, so, but I spent a lot. It takes a lot of energy and concentration to do that. So I, I was by myself a lot. And, um,
2: right. You were created. Can you, yeah. do you do you remember any of the names of your fictional bands that you created?
3: Well, you know, what's funny is the first band that I think I, well, there was Dirt.
2: Dude, <laughs> that's a pretty good. Wow. I like that. Yeah. I like
3: and it. And then there was Low Life, which actually was the first incarnation of Finer Truth in like eighth grade, which we actually played a show in a friend's garage for his birthday. It was our first show. We had five original songs. And <laughs> we played a Toadies cover of Tyler by the Toadies <laughs> as, the, as the closer. Good. Um, but the our original songs were, I don't know. I, in eighth grade, I did discover Earth Crisis on that Ozfest video. So I was getting into heavier music like that. But mostly, like, I was in middle school, I was listening to Metallica, Pantera, got into Corn and Deftones. And, uh, I don't know what the fuck you would call that band. It was like a It was a middle school garage rock band that had all these strange influences or, from, you just try the to throw Hanan everything Toadies, yeah. <laughs> to Metallica to, I mean, even at that point, I remember one of the songs we played at that, that garage birthday show was me trying to sound heavier, like earth crisis, So but, good, you know what I mean? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was just a mishmash as a kid because, you know, you don't have all this pretense as a kid. You just your mind's open.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you there's no you are not uh, having to fit into any sort of definitions. You're just like, I like yeah. this music and I want all of it to sound like this.
3: Yeah, yeah. And uh, so that band was called Low Life. And then um, we reinvented ourselves as... More of a hardcore type band because i I've gotten into Earth Crisis and sick of it all in bands like that, I think by like, by ninth grade. And um, we started playing local clubs as Finer Truth. Um, but we weren't a straight edge band at that time because most of the guys involved didn't even know what that was. It was like me and the singer knew what that was and he wasn't straight edge. But uh, by ninth grade, I started claiming straight edge. And so we, we, we let go of that version of Finer Truth and I... Assembled a band to be a straight edge metalcore band by uh, ninth or 10 I was 16 when we when Fire Truth played our first official show. It was on my birthday, um, so I would have been a sophomore in high school. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, and uh, it was on my birthday, and we played our first official show as Finer Truth Houston Straight Edge Hardcore. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Dude, so good, so good. Um, And so, you know, as you started to, you know, get—I mean, you were completely immersed in music, and like you said, you, um, you know, you didn't really care for school, so to speak. Did did you— um, I guess, did you run into that in high school because you were so distracted by, you know, playing shows and stuff like that? Or did that really happen? You know, once you went away to college where you're just like, Oh dude, I don't, I don't care about school anymore.
3: Yeah, no, I, I, I graduated with honors from high school and I kind of did high school in my sleep. Okay. And, um, uh, I, I think part of that is at least I wasn't distracted by drugs and partying cause I had found straight edge and, um, the only distraction I really ever had was you know I mean at best you can kind of play shows on the weekend when you're in high school so I mean uh, I didn't I didn't have too many distractions in high school I think but then once I had the freedom as a legal adult to just not go back to school anymore <laughs> I was like why would I do this <laughs> well, well yeah and I remember you know the summer that I told my parents um, on two separate occasions, because they were had been long since divorced, but I traveled out to North Carolina. To visit my dad. Told him, "Yeah, I'm not going back to school. I'm just going to play in a band." <laughs> he was just shaking his head like that's a really bad idea. <laughs> 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 um, and but you know I did it though because I went home that fall and we started Die Young. And by December we were touring. And we didn't stop since then. And by the end of the original run of Da Young, like Da Young in its prime, we had played like thirty-five countries. Yeah, and um, we really, we really did it. You know, we put out a lot of records um, with with labels that we wanted. put them out. We toured with a lot of bands and yeah, uh, you, know.
2: you, you did, you, you did the damn thing. We did the damn thing. When, um, you know, and, and when you were doing that, like you said, you know, you were uh, at the kind of the, the center of the, you know, business aspect of the band for booking shows. And like you said, probably dealing with record labels. Cause you guys put out records with eulogy or was it a hand of hope? I can't remember.
3: No, it was, uh, we did graven images on eulogy. Okay. Um, it was like, that came out early 2007. So we recorded it in 2006, got it that was when eulogy was making their big comeback as a hardcore label like Absolutely. they had signed wisdom and chains they had signed turmoil but nothing came of that record it's like i think they recorded it and then it never came out
2: yeah i I signed into century media so it was great uh, Yeah,
3: and then you put out what those three songs right? i put
2: out those three songs and the discography that was my that was my love letter
3: <laughs> yeah hey uh, way to go. Thanks, man. I, I'm <laughs> proud of it. Anytime we I did people. a lot of cool things over there, I remember because I was like, man, now they're getting all the good bands. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I remember that year they signed Kingdom and No Score. And so, I mean, they were trying to get back away from because they had been very, I think, for a bit opportunistic with like pop punk and Christian metalcore to make some money. And then they, you know, kind of lost their street cred. Yeah. And, and they went on this signing spree of like real hardcore bands. But then streaming happened, and the whole
2: music business industry from, bottom yeah, and, yeah, yeah, so, but so did you, um, you know, because you were doing all this, I know it's a function of the band to do this, so you don't really necessarily think of it as kind of the business aspect. Did you um I guess, enjoy a lot of that, or did you just do that because you no one else was gonna do that?
3: I think I did it because, um. I'm a maniac who just naturally tries to <laughs> do everything myself, which is probably as I find as I get older, a little bit of a weakness. Uh, you know I mean? Cause I would write all the songs too. Like I recorded all the guitar up until this like new incarnation of Die Young where we, we actually have new guitars who can out shred me by far. So I let them do it now. But uh, all those years, man, I was writing it. I was booking. I was writing the lyrics. I was doing the artwork. I was, Making the T-shirts, I was insane. Um, <laughs> and I, I felt you know there was there was bands that we would play with. That I would look at, especially as I got older, and I thought, oh man, look at them collaborating. How cool is that? <laughs> oh wow, yeah. There's this is you know, like this like, is the idea of a, yeah. a non non
2: dictatorship. Not yeah, like yeah,
3: you know. I would, I tried to be a benevolent dictator, and I think that most of the guys who had been in the band, like the twenty something of them would agree that I was. There's only a couple that I had it out real bad with, but um, you know, I think that was a weakness on my character by growing up such a loner. I felt I had to do everything. Sure, sure. uh, um, You know, now, the dynamic in the band. Cause we still play I think people aren't aware that we still play.
2: Yeah. You guys are out, you guys are out there when you have, when yeah. you get cool opportunities, uh, I mean, we, you say we yes. We
3: only played one show this year. We put out a, a single and we played one show this year. Um, but last, the, the, the few years before that, you know, we put out records and, and probably played like 20 shows a year on average. Um, but the dynamic we have now is that everybody helps with the songwriting and I'm not because I have so many other things going on. I really delegate things to guys in the band and, and they they want to do it too. Um, which I, I enjoy, um, that they want to do things for the band. Sure. (laughs) Uh, You're like, wow, this is a collaborative nature. Well, you know, there was a lot of guys who came in and out of the band back in the touring days. I think just wanted the opportunity to tour and they probably would have toured with any band. Um, maybe they developed appreciation for how Dae Young did things by the opportunities that they got, you know, living through them. But uh, these days it's kinda like, hey guys, can we do this? And somebody or somebody says, Hey, I got this riff and they, you know, we you know, group texting has really changed the dynamics of bands. You know, we didn't we didn't have that back in the mid 2000s people we weren't group texting each other, you know. No, uh, no, with you got clips to- of songs and shit, you know. Um so things are a lot more available for each of us to contribute. It's easier for, I think, everybody to contribute now. And I, I like it more. It's just, you know, the band is fun now. That's why we're not, um, we're not trying to play a million shows. And when we write songs now, kind of like how I said when we started, it was all about go, 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 you know, we're, keep it simple so we can go. Now it's like we don't have anywhere to go. <laughs> we're not trying to play all these shows, so when we write a song, it's like our our newest best effort to write a an interesting song. So there's a lot more detail in the musicianship and the uh, what we're trying to articulate versus just the one, two, three, four go attitude that we had in the beginning. So the, the band has kind of done a 180.
2: Yeah, well, it's actually there's no pressure and it's fun.
3: Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. In a world
0: where everyone is confined to their homes, society begins its largest bin watch to date. In the hallowed library of Hulu, or perhaps on a shelf of DVDs you haven't looked at in a decade, is a show that perfectly encapsulates life in the early aughts and launched a friendship that would inspire millions. Hi, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. In 2001, we starred in Scrubs, a sitcom that revealed a glimpse of what it was like to survive a medical internship.
1: As Turk and JD, we explored Guy Love. Nearly 20 years later, a lot has changed. We're not supermen, but we're still best friends. Eh. Given the mandatory lockdown, there's no better time to relive the series that brought us together in the first place.
2: soundrink.com is the place to go when you're looking for VIP tickets. Now you've probably heard that word thrown around for the past couple of years and you're like, Oh, what does that really get me? Like, I don't know. Do I get some like special seat where I have to, you know, buy like six drinks at a venue or whatever? No soundrink works directly with bands and management to make sure their VIP experience, whatever it is that they are putting together is not only authentic to them, but is authentic to the fans and the people who are coming to the show. Like they have experiences where you can go, you know, do like an acoustic meet and greet before the show. Ones where you can, you know, grab coffee with your favorite band. Ones where you can like, you know, play Monopoly. Like there's all of this fun stuff that they are able to do because they actually care (laughs) about the people that are coming to the show. You've probably seen some of these other companies that put together these VIP experiences and you're just like, yeah, they're just doing this for some extra money. Soundrink is not that. So visit soundrink.com. You'll be able to find all of your favorite bands on tour with those awesome packages that I'm talking about that can get you something more than just attending the show. You're able to, you know, maybe make some new friends of people who are like, yo, you like that band just as much as I do. Oh, awesome. That's cool. So it builds a community and I really, really appreciate that. So visit soundrink.com and find out more. You've, you've always struck me, too, as just kind of, you know, with the nature of how you've pursued your your projects, um, you, you know, a, always a bit of a, a nomad where it's like, you know, I mean, clearly you've toured for a majority of your life with the band. And obviously when you're working at P 2 and stuff like that, um, do you think like but clearly touring of any shape or size um, is a certain beast, you know. So how is your relationship with Touring, I guess, evolved. Like, you know, would you like would you flip a switch? And if you could tour 200 days out of the year, that you would now, or you know, wh- what's your relationship like?
3: You know, I got more into the idea of having an ordered life, um, and I think, uh, well, initially when I left, when we hung Da Young up the first time, and I started touring for p Two, I had to be on someone else's schedule. You know, and it wasn't like a nine to five, but we were kind of working those hours and still having to drive, and then I found that as I got older sitting in a van, I needed to stimulate my body more, so I got into working out, and then I found that working out really leveled me out, and it helped me feel better, and it made me better at my job, and then as being an advocate for animals, the response I got from people, I think just the way I carried myself, and especially, you know, 10 years ago, people, if they saw a vegan who looked like they were in shape, they were like, What? We don't think people would ask me, You're not really vegan, are you? You know? And yeah, sure. So it, it motivated me to keep going with the fitness aspect. And um, eventually I got into to powerlifting, which, um, you know, you have to really regiment your. Eating, your sleeping, and and your time in the gym, and that really taught me how to discipline myself, to plan out my my weeks. And I, now when I travel with Da if you know we didn't do anything much this year, but I, I have been traveling doing the vegan meathead stuff, where I speak at like Veg Fest, or I have some sometimes kind of, uh, one-off events where I'm lecturing about a vegan strength diet. Um, i i hate touring now it's because it, it fucks with my <laughs> schedule and my ability to eat the right food um more than three days at a time i am just like god i need to get to fuck home and get back on schedule you know i really like the schedule now so i'm glad i got the touring out of my system when i was younger because now you know i'm, comp- I'm competitive in the powerlifting world i i usually do like uh A qualifying meet and then uh, some kind of a championship meet each year Um, and I have to stay really strict with everything to be able to keep doing that and um, but I find it really rewarding and it helps me feel good and, and like I said it levels me out so you know when I think back to the the 200 days a year on the road with young. I mean, God, that's the worst schedule for your body and your mind. I mean, and and like I said, how I had come to hate the band, I also think I was mentally in a really, and emotionally in a really poor place because you get done playing a show at midnight, then you pack up, then you go eat, then you go to someone's house and you talk to them till 4 a.m., and then you get up at noon, and you eat garbage on the road, and then you go to a venue, and you get there at 6 or 7 p.m., and then you sit around the venue. <laughs> there's a lot of idle time. And there's a lot of junk food and just a, the most fucked up sleep schedule. Um, I found that the more I ordered my schedule, the better I felt. So I just felt, in a sense, happier, or at least more leveled out. With the fitness discipline and the eating discipline, and and sleeping more like a normal person. Yeah. <laughs> um, so as I get older, I don't miss touring. I mean, I still travel quite a bit, most mostly for the the vegan meathead stuff. And, um, but I really try to manage it in a way that I can keep the fitness stuff first. Sure. So I don't so I don't get off track with that. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, da young's done. A couple tours in the last two or three years that were like seven to nine days each, and man, that was kind of like my max at this point, given all the other things I'm juggling. Yeah, you're
2: you like know? I can't, I can't be out for this yeah. long. Yeah,
3: yeah, you know, like an overnight drive, man, like that. I used to do that three nights a week, whatever, and you know, went about my business but an overnight drive for any of us now being in our mid-30s it just wrecks us for the whole week <laughs>
2: <laughs> totally totally it's like I I'm not I'm not used to this you know
3: yeah, yeah.
2: even if it's like a two hour drive from like you know New York to Philly it's like oh geez man, that's forever. <laughs>
3: <laughs> or just, just the mental stress of traffic. I mean, I just can't no,
2: can't deal with that. <laughs> uh, um, and you know, kinda the idea of you being, you know, so involved with animal rights and your um, you know, mission to share the idea that you can clearly be a, a healthy vegan, you know, a strong vegan and all this stuff has, you know, been such a core component of who you are for as long as I have known you to be. Like you said, you know you're working out mm-hmm. <laughs> as you were touring with Peter two and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. wh- you know, I-, I guess where did you get kind of bit by the bug of um, you know w- working out and being fit from that perspective? because clearly not everybody likes to do that.
3: I think it was a combination of several things in my life. Like when I joined Peter two, I actually had just ended a like s- six year relationship. That I had been in my whole early twenties was like my first serious relationship, and uh, getting back out into the single world <laughs> was a very sobering experience, you know. Um, <laughs> sure, and I, you know you get reintroduced to insecurities you forgot that you have because you used to have so, You know, I used to have someone that was just kind of accepted me no matter what, but uh, getting back out into the like dating world, you start to get more self-conscious, and so. And then also, as you get older, especially in your late 20s, you start to notice, oh, my metabolism not the same as when I was 21. And uh, I don't know. That was a motivator to to get more fit. But then also, like I said, when I was working with PETA, actually I met my friend Billy, who was a vegan bodybuilder or somewhat, like not like a professional, but he was on the team that I started with at PETA 2 And he was one of the most fit vegans I'd ever met. And uh, we started working out in the uh, weight rooms at hotels and stuff with dumbbells and nothing super serious, but I liked the way I felt. I like aspiring to something, like to make myself better. And like I said, when I was out in the field talking about campaigns with people, especially representing PETA because it's such a divisive name, um, I found that the more fit we were, the more willing people were to ask us questions and be curious and just, you know, it just didn't fit their stereotype of what a vegan was. So it made them curious. And, uh, I think that was also a motivator to keep going down that fitness path. Um, and eventually I found, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not really cut out to be a bodybuilder too hairy. And, (laughs) and, um, also just the way, uh, fat sits on my body, like to, to cut all that, I start to feel really unhealthy, um, but I, I discovered compound lifts, and that led me to powerlifting. And um, powerlifting is a great sport because, you know, when you lift heavy, you can't lift every day. Your body will just shut down. Your central nervous system shuts down. You can't recover, so you can only do heavy lifts three or four days a week. And the rest of the time, you got to spend. Focusing on recovery, which means time out of the gym. So that means you have ample time to still have a a social life or a creative life. Um, Whereas I think bodybuilders and CrossFitters and things like that, they spend so much of their free time in the gym. And uh, that was another reason I didn't really like those sports. And I I lean toward powerlifting. Um, But, man, I got bit by the fitness bug while I was at PETA. And it's interesting because music led me to PETA. And then PETA led me to fitness. And now, you know, I've got the book, The Way of the Vegan Meathead, and I've toured all around the continent talking about the vegan strength diet. And uh, I've been competing in powerlifting like five years now, and I continue to improve at it. Yeah. So, um, no, it's
2: really It's really cool. Cause yeah, you, you, one connects to the other in very yeah. obvious directions. And it's, it's, you know, it's like you're you're using all of these things as building blocks to, um, not only the next thing, but then it, you know, makes you a well-rounded person where people can kind of be like, oh yes, I see you. Not only have you been doing this for a long time, but you have this previous experience that makes total sense of why you would do this.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. One thing just led to another and strangely it all started with music and that led to activism and activism led to athletics.
2: Yeah. There you go. Um, And something that I've noticed, too, I mean, like you've mentioned on more than one occasion, and, uh, you know, know, you're a writer, you have published books, you have published, you know, poetry, and it's one of those things where most people... Um, that would just look at like, you know, one sliver of your life where it's just like, oh, okay, here's, here's this, you know, really buff dude. That's a vegan. Uh, and he's a poet like, get the hell out of here. (laughs) Like, you know, you always, it it seems like you always enjoy uh, defying conventions, whether that's, you know, being a vegan from Texas or, you know, all of these things. I'm sure that that has also played a part in your, you know, ability to sit down and and write a novel and your ability to, you know, pen poetry and stuff like that. Um, I'm sure you just get kind of a a kick out of the way that people, uh, you know, are are surprised by these things that you maybe share with them. That are just like, dude, there's no, come on, Daniel, you wrote a book, dude. Like, come on, you know what I'm saying?
3: Yeah. And that goes back to, I guess when we are talking about the industrious nature uh, like maybe I get some of it from my father. Um, in other ways, it's just I haven't been content, and so I'm just restless and trying to find ways to express myself to deal with whatever pain of consciousness, the pain of failure, the pain of whatever we encounter in life is challenging. Um, I don't know. I Sometimes I think maybe maybe it's too much people are just kind of like what the fuck is this guy doing He's <laughs> sure. writing about you know the first book i wrote was the way of the vegan meathead but it was because when i got into powerlifting people were asking me about how i do it it wasn't a book i actually wanted to write it was a book people were asking me to do sure the other stuff like uh, the new novel called Canefield. And the poetry stuff is stuff that kind of more naturally comes out of me because it's about me trying to process my own experience, um, in my intimate life and in my personal life and my upbringing, things like that. Um, but you know, there's there's so much. The world is so full of everyone offering their contributions into the forum of you know, whatever, books and feelings and thoughts. And so I think especially with social media now, it's so. It's, so easy for everyone to just put their thoughts out there. So no one's really asking me for <laughs> a novel or poetry, but um, the poetry's not far off from dying lyrics, you know? Um, I didn't want to get just pegged as the vegan guy. No. Sure. <laughs> protein guy, because yeah, there's so, much, there's so many more dimensions to each of us than just like the one thing that society says, ah, this is what we use them for. Um so whether people discover that side of me or connect with it or or like it or not, I felt that, well, yeah, this is just what naturally kind of comes out of me. So I need to put it out there so I can get on with the next thing. Um, like for example, the the new novel Canefield, which covers a lot of um kind of developmental relationship stories that and it shows how they linked into my creative life with the bands. Um, It's all fictionalized, of course, but in a lot of ways it is kind of a confessional memoir. But um, that, you know, I started writing that before I I started writing The Way the Vegan Meathead, and then in the midst of all the things going on in my life people were like, hey, you're vegan, you lift, tell us how, tell us how, you know? (laughs) And so then I was like, well, it seems like people really, oh wow, people want something from me, finally. So here, I guess I'll put this out, you know? Um, Sure. But I never wanted to be just that. So these other things were, I guess, I mean, I feel like good art comes from a place where you have to do it for yourself and whether other people connect with it or not is really not on you because to put out something authentic, you, you can't worry about that. But at the end of the day, as an artist, whether you're viable or not and whether you can have the means to continue doing it. It uh, depends on whether people consume it and connect with it or not. But you can't control that outcome. You know, like I never want to tailor what I do um, for success, even though, you know, as you get older, I think having some kind of success, even if it's in a day job kind of career, it becomes more important, you know. Um, But, and that's why I've kept a day job. So that I don't have to compromise the art.
2: Yeah, sure, sure. And uh, what but, is, and and what yeah. have you what have you done from that perspective? From I mean, what do you do for a day job?
3: Uh, well, you know, I mean, I, I did spend a number of years in the nonprofit world, sure, in animal rights, and uh, I stumbled into a job with uh, Dell. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, like sales liaison work, um, a number of years ago, and uh, you know, there was some. I got laid off this year and so uh, my new job is, uh, like a quality analyst assisting the VA and helping, uh, evaluate medical records for veterans so that they can hopefully get covered okay. on the biggest dime. You know, uh, that's a, that's a whole, like just a mess. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Uh, you know, um, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's where I'm at right now. But, um, I kind of, I, I've never had like a career. I, I thought I was going to pursue animal rights, and maybe you can relate because you're not with PETA anymore, correct?
2: No, I mean I do some consulting work for them, but that's that's the extent. Because uh, uh, I think once yeah. you've once you've worked for PETA, you always kind of are in their orbit. <laughs> so when they right. need right. when they yeah, need help, yeah. they're like, hey, can you do this? Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I understand.
3: Um, but yeah, most people, I I almost look at time in the AR like animal rights nonprofit world as like military service. It's like for most people, it's not going to be a career, but you do it out of a service to something greater than you. Especially when you're younger, um, and then it wears you out, and you just can't do it anymore.
2: <laughs> well, I, well, I think from from where the the position that that you were doing, where you were, you know, face to face with people every day, day in and day out, speaking about you know your experience with you know veganism and answering questions and all that. Yeah, that to me is not a sustainable thing. Like, you know,
3: i right. Well, I came back and I actually worked in email marketing for, yeah, I remember that a while also. Um, and that was also exhausting. <laughs> well, it, it's
2: cause I, I, it's something that I know that the organization and many other nonprofit organizations. And frankly, when you have people who are passionate about a thing and you, they come in the doors because they're so excited to work at wherever it is. Um, you yeah. know, it, it's, it is tough. Like I mean, I saw that day in and day out. Even working at a record label, it's like you know people. Oh. Would, you know people would come in and work for like you know two dollars an hour. I mean I'm exaggerating, but like yeah. they. It, when you are involved with the thing you're passionate about, you have to be careful to not um, not only not burn yourself out, but then also not be exploited to the extent where you're just like, oh, I don't feel like I'm even getting remotely fairly compensated or whatever.
3: Right, right. Um, And I find in the, you know, I don't, anyone listening to this, I don't want to discourage them from going and working in the nonprofit world uh, because it's so important. Same. Um, But I think for, and man, my hat is off to all those friends of ours that have stayed and made careers out of it because uh, they found a, a way to balance their personal needs with you know the needs of like you know the animals or the the dispossessed or, or whatever whatever yeah. you know, cause we're fighting for, and, and you know they need somebody to do that. Um, but yeah, for sure, at the end of the day, we got to make an evaluation of is this a life that we can personally be sustained with, and um, for our own health and our own sanity, can we do this? And a lot of people can't, a lot of people just. I, I think it's fair to say that it's not the best life for most people. And for the people that can stay at it, you know, like I, mean, I know we both know people that have been there over a decade, maybe some close to two at this point. It's like, wow, what a hero, you know? Yeah.
2: Well, and it's it, it's the, the idea of compassion fatigue, you know? It's like, I mean, especially especially at PETA, where it's just like day in and day out, um, yeah. you know, you're confronted with all of these things. And it's, uh, yeah, it becomes draining where you're just like, right. Ah man, I can't like I you know you're being exposed to the stuff you're already aware of, and you're like I don't want to I don't want to see this undercover footage or whatever you know it's like yeah it's yeah rough. it's um, rough
3: and that's you know I found new ways to advocate for myself you know and, and now what I'm doing is trying to kind of uh, lead more by an example to show people how easy and fun and um, advantageous it can be to to be a vegan if you do it right if you plan it right. And um, I've distanced myself from all the horror.
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, you're trying to demystify something. Yeah, like you're, like you said, you're answering questions um, from people who are are curious because of your actions and the way that you are as an individual and the way that you present yourself. So it's a whole different, yeah, like
3: it's a different (laughs) angle. It's a dynamic that I can currently live with better than the last one. Yeah, (laughs) no, for sure. We all got to find that balance. We do.
2: Yeah, yeah. And you only know when you try the things. Exactly. Um, The last thing I want to hit on was the, um, you know, I'm sure with the vegan meathead stuff that, um, you know, you're interacting with a lot of people, and I don't use this disparagingly, but like, you know, civilians. It's like, you know, these are people who are are clearly not in, you know, indoctrinated with all of our, you know, ins and outs of subcultures and being exposed to the idea of veganism when you're like, you know, 14 years old or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, so how how interesting is it for you? And I'm sure how funny is it that these, um, you know, uh, these questions come up to you that are like the most typical, especially the protein one, where it's just like, I'm sure you answer that 400,000 times in a given year. Um, you know, so how, how do you kind of, uh, you know, handle that? Is it basically just kind of like, you know, you have your sort of like, all right, well, here's, here's my talking points. and know how to answer this one or whatever. And not in a dispassionate way, but just in a, all right, I'm, I'm used to this line of questioning.
3: Well, I think it's refreshing because it's so new for all these other people. I mean, you just have to realize for millions of people, they're just now finding out what veganism is. So um, I, I try to lay it out in a way. I mean, when I give lectures about it, it's pretty stock. You know, I go by my PowerPoint and I already know what I'm going to say and it echoes a lot of whatever I said in my book. And... Um, what I like the most is the question and answers, you know, where it's more of just a dialogue. Um, because it's, it's just surprising to see what angles people are coming at it from. You know, it's really weird to me that for most people I'm meeting out at these veg fests and stuff, propaganda and earth crisis aren't household names. <laughs> <laughs> you yes. know, uh, uh, you yeah, know that's how I grew up in our, uh, in animal rights is like, and, and when I started working at PETA, it's like everybody was there because of those bands. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. It's you like know, I, and I don't think that's necessarily the case anymore, you know, because times change, and um, but you know what I find the most challenging actually is just speaking to anyone about things that. Aren't vegan related and things that aren't kind of uh, anything I would talk about in *Die Young*, you know, which kind of would be almost like this Bill Hicksian kind of uh, sinister commentary about society. Sure. Um, Because what I've got into now with like the novel writing is um, storytelling, and there's a storytelling group in Memphis. It's kind of like the Moth, but it's I'm living in Memphis right now and. They have a thing called Spill It, which I have uh, I attend their events, and it's just storytelling. And the guy that runs it, he does workshops, and I've gone to his workshops, and we work on telling stories, because that's something I want to be good at, because um, I'm speaking in front of people all the time. But I've I've gotten up in front of you know these crowds of strangers just to tell a random story, and tried to make the story compelling. And I found that just telling an experience in a story kind of format was it caused me so much more anxiety than talking about vegan protein, or getting a vasectomy, which I tell people, or shoplifting, which I would talk about in Dion shows all the time. You know, all these like really taboo kinds of things, and I like to shock people. But when I got out, and that's like the real civilian uh, communication experience. It's just you get up and share an experience in your life with a room full of strangers, and you try to make it something that they can relate to. Man, that oh man, I was so much more nervous doing that than anything I've done for vegan meathead or die young, um, and it's it's kind of weird that talking about more common experiences was more difficult.
2: Sure, sure, yeah, that it's like the the things that are you know clearly especially in your head more nuanced where it's just like well you know veganism is something that I've, I've been wrestling with for many many years but then like you know these these emotions that other people can have about the thing that you speak about is difficult to navigate.
3: Yeah yeah I guess you know when it comes to vegan uh, subject matter I feel like an expert and I'm just in such a comfort zone I can get up in front of 200-300 people and just blah 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 this is what I do make some stock joke and it all goes over well it's just very routine um, and uh, then you know when it came to Die Young, you know, you're playing in front of mostly young men who are angry just like you and you say the controversial fucked up thing that no one else in the world would appreciate but then you know you you're agitating this crowd of hardcore kids. And they're kind of, you know, they're in your plane of consciousness. So it's not, it's not that vulnerable, really. Um, I, I think in Da Young, I always tried to go to a vulnerable place, like talking about depression or suicide, um, you know, because we had we had a guitar player who I think, I don't know if it was an intentional uh, suicide, but he, he overdosed on drugs um, a number of years ago. Yeah, you know, I started talking about things like that more, and the way we felt about it as his friend on on stage, and and I found that a lot of people will come up and and share stories afterwards, and and that was nice and cathartic. But uh, I don't know. I felt a. I guess I felt a comfort because even though I feel very alienated in the hardcore scene, especially as I get older, it's still my tribe. You know, I still kind of know the the wavelength that we're on when I'm at a show. Yeah,
2: for sure. It's like, yeah, when you've been experiencing it for as long as you have, like there's a familiarity, no matter, you know, if you didn't go to a show for 15 years, you could probably still (laughs) jump in and still recognize shades of it from, you know, your massive year absence, but you haven't been that. So yeah, you're you're still going to feel that. So yeah.
3: Yeah. and, And then getting up in front of total strangers who you have none of that basis with. That, I found, is much more difficult, and that's kind of like one of the challenges that I'm trying to <laughs> try, try to uh, <laughs> add it to my list of trades I'm not a master of. Um, sure. <laughs> that's kind of where I am now because with the novel and the poetry and stuff, and those those are the kinds of writing that uh, I'm pursuing more heavily right now. Um, I guess trying to, to tap into the basis with a wider group of people is... Something I feel uh, I need to be able to do, but it's I, I find it strangely more more challenging.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, it is. Yeah, anytime you're trying to you know extend your reach into other things that are clearly unfamiliar, it's like, well, yeah, you're d- it's all an experiment, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Daniel, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. It was uh, really enjoyable for me.
3: uh likewise, man. Thank you so much for uh, keeping this thing going. I'll that- be listening to all your episodes that was that thank you
2: very much Daniel for coming on the show and uh, sharing all that stuff. Cause uh, yeah, I just, I appreciate when people trust me and want to come on the show in order to, you know, express whatever it is that's on their mind and be able to talk about things that uh, you know, they might be a little uncomfortable to share or whatever, but uh, yeah, thank you very much, Daniel. Appreciate it. And like I said, go check out all of his books, go check out veganmeathead.com. It's really, really compelling Uh, approachable stuff. If you are into nutrition and health and weightlifting and all that stuff, um, he is an expert at that. And uh, I encourage you to check out his stuff. Next week, we have Scott Hobart, who plays in a band called Giant's Chair. They were a pretty, they they loomed pretty large in my life in regards to the sort of mid-90s emo stuff. And uh, Giant's Chair has returned. They're releasing a new full length. And uh, I wanted to have Scott on because, uh, you know, the band hadn't really done anything in close to 20 years. And then they started playing some shows and realized it was fun and decided to put on a record, all that fun stuff. So yeah, if you are a fan of mid nineties emo, the next week is absolutely for you. And I fall very much into that camp. So anyways, until then, please be safe, everybody.
0: Hi there. I'm Zach Raff, And I'm Donald Faison. We're real life best friends but
1: we met playing fake life best friends, Turk and JD, on the sitcom Scrubs. 20 years later, we've decided to re-watch the series one episode at a time